Hello and welcome to Fresh Air. I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. I'm Redane. I'm Chris. And I'm Andy. Now, last week we had a bit of an issue where we ran out of time. We were supposed to be covering off both legitimacy and obligation, but we only had time to cover off obligation. So this week we are going to be covering off legitimacy. So we first have to ask, what is legitimacy? Now, in simplest terms, this is a justification of validity. But how does that apply to politics? Well, when we're talking about political legitimacy, we are basically talking about the right to rule. So in order for a government to function, it needs to have something of a right to rule. And because if they don't, they'll likely get overthrown and, well, probably won't end up very well for the nobility. So essentially, we it's their justification to be rulers. Um, yeah, it is. And... Political legitimacy is uh, the is sourced in in a, in a few different ways. One of which is the perception, and the other is factual legitimacy. A government is legitimate when it's either perceived by a big majority of its populace to be legitimate, or when it basically has the power or the force, the the use of force to stay in power. So. When uh, a government, for instance, a military junta, seizes power and oppresses the people, it's not perceptually legitimate, but it is practically legitimate in the sense that it can still uh, issue commands and still inspire some kind of obedience amongst its populace. Cool. Does anyone have any questions on that before we proceed? So would that then, if we're talking about like a military takeover, that would then come down to the whole crass argument for obligation then, yeah? Um, yeah, basically, but at the same time not really because it would still not be your moral duty to obey them. It would just be wise. Yeah, fair enough. So should we move on to the different theories of legitimacy? Uh, yeah, sure. Basically, I found like seven uh, theories of legitimacy. The first would be that there is no political legitimacy. Um, this is an argument basically uh, the uh, most often formulated by either radical egalitarians, anarchists, or, um, well, very vivid pacifists. Um, it basically holds the argument that either we shouldn't be violent and uh, the right to rule means that there is an authorization of violence towards another which is immoral and thus illegitimate or it uh, states that people are equal and to have someone have the right to rule over others would make society unequal and is therefore immoral. I presume that relies on the possibly correct assumption that it's impossible to have equality between different, not classes of people necessarily, but different levels of authority. Uh, yeah, it, it would simply mean that if I rule over you, then that would mean that I have more rights than you. Very basically, I would have the right to give you an order or to demand something from you and that would make me 
in some sense superior to you okay i follow that so i'm trying to formulate my my response to this it in a way i can understand that technically there is no key differences between you know dif- different people in in that sort of sense where like you said you you know this person is superior to you because they're ruling over you and actually everybody is equal but then that doesn't necessarily work either does it no it doesn't that that's basically the biggest objection you can have it's simply impractical and it would also mean that there's no one to for instance control somebody else's use of violence on you so you would not in fact be free from violence yeah i think that's one of the major objections i would see with it as well in that it doesn't take into account human nature itself and we generally do tend to be violence uh, violent or you know a, a certain percentage of us generally tend to be violent yeah indeed and it would also mean that there would be some kind of a power vacuum and one of the things you hear quite often especially in modern media is nature abhors a vacuum which simply is true uh, at least when it comes to power so for instance say the uk becomes an anarchist state right now and nobody has the right to rule over anyone you can bet your sweet ass that for instance the us will sweep in and start dominating you or you might and... even get a if we take it down to a smaller scale there's nothing but in each village someone who is more powerful than the others basically subdues everybody to do his or her bidding um and he he rules by might essentially rather than there being a specific legitimacy of government it would be i am putting my power over you there's no government except there's no power except there's me i don't think that's even necessarily the only way it would happen though because you look at people in situations where they're not too sure what to do or what's going on and they'll find a leader so there's no way of having a society with no leadership because a people some people will try to lead and b a lot of people will naturally look for a leader to see them through things because they want somebody else to make tough decisions yeah well uh, i wouldn't say it's impossible i just think it's impossible on a large scale so uh, there are apparently I, i forgot to note down their names but there are apparently some scientists who claim that during the hunter-gatherer period of uh, humanity, um, there were a lot of tribes in which uh, everybody was essentially equal. So it was possible in those scenarios, but I think that in our current days with 7 billion people walking the earth, it's um, going to be either impossible or only possible on some kind of an island with a very committed population. Even still in those hunter-gatherer things, surely there would have been one person that goes, we're going here. I'm sure they didn't all sit around and go, oh, yeah, well, let's every single one of us vote which way we're going until you suddenly get a unified decision, uh, at which point it would indicate there isn't that sort of complete equality, surely. But obviously, I don't I don't know enough about it. It's just I'm having trouble imagining there's something where there was a complete power vacuum. 
Well, hunter-gatherers aren't necessarily nomadic, so they wouldn't really need to make a decision of now we're going here. They would just have to uh, coordinate their hunting parties, which makes it a lot easier. I think if we just look at history itself and the evolving of countries, we can sort of see that idea that uh, a vacuum of power will be filled by somebody who decides they want power. Yeah, certainly. And you, you see that the most recent on the world stage where uh, basically the different countries prior to the UN and like like-minded international institutions um it was basically the state of nature only between countries instead of between people and you see that that tends to still be filled with some kind of an international institution anyway yeah okay so i think it it's safe to say that we're pretty much in agreement that the fact that there is no legitimacy is not legitimate <laughs> in itself um and that if there was that vacuum there there would always be someone there looking to take the power um and they'd probably do it by force which i think leads us on to uh, your second theory of legitimacy doesn't it martin which is le legitimacy by force and power yes exactly so uh, in order to uh discuss this uh, rightly, we should distinguish force from power. Um, force is the use of violence and power is basically the ability to use violence as it arises from consent of the many. Um, basically what this theory says is, uh, well, what we touched on um, not too long ago uh, about uh, governments that uh, manage to seize power and hold power through the use of force uh well the, basically that that's just a thing so we could go back to um when we used to have kingdoms and it, you know you'd have two kingdoms battling the other and you know, kill the king and you usurp the throne um and you've got your you know you've, you've earned your power by by force could you also say power is almost if we go back to one of our hypotheticals where we were discussing the the lynching the, the the power is the ability to say to someone else you lynch that person and the force is the act of the lynching that person um yeah that that would be accurate so whilst i understand that there is you know you you could take something by force um and you, you know you could you could have your power over people and, and make them do things how does that actually make them legitimate i mean how is that a good enough justification other than going back to the crass argument well it's uh well in the west we would tend to think that it's not um but on the other hand, we see what happens to a society such as Afghanistan, where we, um, where we try to try to change a tribal uh, nation into a dem dem democratic one. So um, the point is that um, in some cultures, uh, perhaps I should say, perhaps. 
power or force is the most appealing thing. Um, but aside from that, uh, it's also the difference between the factual and the perceptual legitimacy. So if you're able to use power and to use force, in, for instance, to protect your own population, that means that you are legitimate. I think I'm having a little bit of problems understanding the whole concept of legitimacy. I think maybe, Joe, you are thinking in the same way as me, as where we're, or certainly I'm thinking of legitimacy as a kind of rational and agreed upon way of ruling. Somebody is legitimate if they've gone through it through proper agreed upon terms, whereas what it actually just means is one's ability to rule in a situation. Would that be correct? Um, yeah, but I think you would be cutting a few corners. Uh, the point is uh, that somebody has the right to issue commands over other people. So, yeah, basically my strength in an otherwise uh, authority-less situation would mean that I get to order you around. Uh, not you though, Chris, because you do martial arts. <laughs> not very well, or well, not anymore. So, I, I mean, if we if we think about legitimacy in a way, as I said at the beginning, like a, a justification of validity. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, someone who has the ability to overpower someone else would be able to rule someone, but it might not necessarily be the best way to do it so i mean if we think about it in in terms of beliefs and how like the burden on a belief is to make that belief uh rational and you're doing it through um you, you know your your logical thought processing and any evidence that might support it the fact there's nothing to contradict it etc now if you're thinking about legitimacy in a similar way Personally, I don't find just because someone has the ability to use force uh, against me is enough of a valid reason for them to have the power. They do have the power. I will admit that, you know, if I don't want anything bad to happen to me, then I'm probably going to have to follow them or find some way to usurp them. Um, but I don't think simply having uh, a uh, ruling using force and power is enough of a justification for them to actually have that power. Yeah, I think you're coming up on the same kind of hurdle as I am with what legitimacy technically means in this context. Yeah, and you should look at it a bit like this. Um, when we're talking about political legitimacy, like I said, we're talking about the right to rule. And the right to rule, in absence of more desirable things, can also just simply be the right of the strongest. Uh, but not only that, uh, it's also, for instance, the um, ability of the UK government, in this case, using their military to protect its population. That's also a use of force and a use of power. Um, I also forgot 
to say that the um, the idea that power is uh, basically the rule uh, with the consent of the people is uh, Hannah Arendt's theory. So that's what Dave was referring to earlier on. So that's only using force when it is agreed upon by the people that you are in power over. So like the police being allowed to use force to arrest somebody, but not being allowed to just walk around beating the crap out of people because they're dissidents. Well, that would be control of force through power. So basically, force is the use of violence, and power is uh, the ability to use force through the multitude. So um, basically, when you um, control the police apparatus, you have power uh, and the ability to use force. It's not the same thing, of course, because you would still have to adhere to certain rules. But uh, you do get to um, basically dole out physical punishment or financial. I think something that might be useful here is to define what power is in its simplest term, which is often looked at as power is the ability for agent A to make agent B do something that agent B might not otherwise do. Yeah, exactly. So force can be used to gain power, but power is the broader concept that can be achieved in other ways? Yeah, hypothetically. Right, I think I've got it now. Would you say that say say uh, a, a, an, an army moving in um, and taking over a a country um, is not necessarily giving them the legitimacy but the ability for a government to rule and use that force and power in a way to protect its citizens is giving it the the legitimacy that we're speaking of oh well the the, ex, the ability to exercise power in this case uh is legitimacy and so when you move in a, a, an army into another country you are using violence to acquire power over the people that are there and thus a sort of legitimacy until it is uh, aptly enough challenge that people overthrow you okay yeah so i think my main disconnect is i understand how that could give a form of legitimacy i just don't think for me that that is enough of a justification for someone to be in power i i'm in power just because i've overtaken you know your government with force which is another uh thing that there's um also a difference between um, personal perceptions of legitimacy and collective perceptions of legitimacy. So when you see a protest, uh, you will often hear, hear things like you said, like not my president or things of that nature. And those things are expressions of personal legitimacy. So for those people who chant those things, there is no legitimacy in the government they as they experience it. However, for the great multitude, 
of the people who live in that country, there still is enough legitimacy for at least not to protest. I think for me to understand it properly, I would slightly change the wording. So legitimacy isn't the right to rule so much as the ability to. So if they use force, I might not, they might not have a right in the same way that we usually use that word, but they do have the ability to. They are doing so, and that's what makes it legitimate in this context. Would that be a fair way to look at it? Well, I would agree, personally, but uh, the simple fact is that, uh, like I said, in absence of more desirable things, uh, the right, the ability to use violence to subdue people does give them the right to rule. It's simply, as we are taught, the right of the strongest. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so regardless of whether we agree that that gives someone uh, a form of legitimacy we could say legitimacy can be earned through force and power cool okay i think we've got that one does anyone have any more questions on that before we move on to the next i just wanted to ask you joe are we basically on the same page with this i i, I think so sorry cat just Man, across it's the been keyboard, a while but... isn't it it has yeah yeah i, I think i think <laughs> we are i think it's just um it, in some respects i i the, the problem i had and uh, potentially didn't is I was looking at it from what I would qualify as legitimate rather than this is a particular theory of legitimacy and this is what it says it is so under that particular theory it was saying force and power much in the same way of regardless or not of whether I agree with hedonism it's about you know seeking pleasure so if th this is basically saying you get legitimacy by force and power. In hedonism, you're being moral by seeking happiness and gaining happiness and, and gaining happiness for others. Is is that basically what we're saying here? Basically, um, the point with um, legitimacy from power and force is also that it is basically inarguable in the sense that, um, well, not, well, I, I could name you a, a whole lot of people who are uh, experiencing this. So it's also a form of factual legitimacy. Um, if you look at North Korea, for instance, they are basically, uh, the, the government of North Korea is basically just legitimate because they use force to quell, uh, use, yeah, force to, to quell each and every insurgency before it even actually starts. So. Uh, what you do need to continually have in the back of your head uh, at all times when discussing political philosophy is that uh, the primary directive of every government is to preserve itself, which basically means that they have a vested interest in being legitimate in whichever way they can and whichever way they are doing at that moment. Do you feel that force and power gives a government legitimacy regardless of whether it does in this form do you actually feel that it's a, a good enough justification i think it is insufficient but that it certainly is a part of legitimacy so um what you could say uh, about force is that it's also the possibility to 
right out citations. And well, to compare it to our current predicament of the COVID-19 thing, the government is maintaining uh, the shutdown, whether partial or complete, by giving out citations for everybody who violates the shutdown guidelines, which is forced and which I do think contributes to their legitimacy because it enforces the power they exercise. No, that that's fair enough, but it's it's reasoned force there, isn't it, as well? You're not just... Well, it was like Chris was giving the example earlier of the, the policeman has the right to restrain a, a criminal but doesn't necessarily have the right to go up there and just whip out his truncheon on everyone that's around him. Yeah, basically, like I said, you really need to separate those two things of the factual legitimacy and perceived legitimacy. So um, I do think that the factual legitimacy part is inarguable because it's simply the fact that legitimacy in some form or another arises from the ability to use power and force. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that the use of power and force is durable uh, as uh, the, the sole source of uh, political legitimacy, but I do think that it goes toward it for part of it. Obviously, you don't go around and beating your entire population into submission because that's a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Though the Kim family is faring fairly well on it, to be honest. Well, I would add with the case of the North Korea and the Kim family, it shows that perceived legitimacy is also kind of important because they use an idea sort of like the divine right of kings in that it is God that has given them the right to that throne as such. Um, Kim Jong-il came down from the mountains, was born from a cloud, came through lightning, you know, that whole sort of mythos behind the family so even they understand that there needs to be some kind of perception of legitimacy as well as the material facts of legitimacy i do wonder if they actually believe that i do love you for adding this dave because this is one of the theories i would have forgotten to mention the ruling by divine command it's what our monarchy was based on for a very long time it's what a lot of governments were based on for a very long time. Simply because it was the easiest. Exactly. Yeah, you have an unquestionable God that has put somebody there, so you shouldn't be questioning their legitimacy. But like I say, even somewhere like North Korea understands there has to be a perception of legitimacy as well. I don't, I don't think it holds completely for every citizen, but I do think some citizens are patriotic enough to accept that as a perception as well as the material legitimacy created through the force. Yeah, well, when we're talking about North Korea, it also comes down to a whole lot of other things, like, for instance, the economy, which is way too convoluted to get into right now. But there's, a, there's indeed a, there's a whole slew of other things that are actually fairly relevant, but it's also a very convenient example for how people are sometimes just beat into submission. Yeah, I totally agree. Awesome. Well, is there anything else we need to know on the power, or should we move on? 
Not that I know of. Are there any more questions? I think I understand it as well as I'm gonna. Okay, well then we are going to sort of slightly repeat ourselves with uh, political legitimacy as it comes forward from the social contract. And so basically, like I said earlier, the social contract is, well, fairly literally a social contract, which means that, well, there's there's something each party sacrifices and something each party gets in return. So... Uh, the most basic kind of social contract would be uh, that the government agrees to keep the peace uh, in exchange for the citizen paying taxes. This can, of course, be expanded in uh, a lot of different ways, but, well, that, that would be dependent on the society itself. Can that overlap with the previous thing that we were talking about, where the social contract could be the you do this for us and what you get in return is not being beaten up by the police. Would that still count as a social contract? Or is the absence of a negative not enough of a benefit to technically class? Well, I think that at that point you're going, you're going back to uh, legitimacy from power and force. I was just curious if it could still be viewed in the same way but under a different context it's basically protection money isn't it it's uh, uh yeah it does yeah, exactly that it crosses over as 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 martin said back into legitimacy by force and power but what you're doing is you're it, you're saying framing it in a different way yeah so that's probably just a different frame potentially even a framing error because we're looking at it from a different angle that makes it look like it's part of a social contract whereas i think the whole point of the the social contract is about genuine benefits rather than uh you know i won't give you a negative it's these are the positives of being here yeah that makes sense in order for us um it it's an argument which bases itself on a valid contract right and in order to view a, a contract valid, at least traditionally, is mutual benefit, which means double positives. It's, it wouldn't be like, if you pay us, you'll get beat up by this illegitimate entity. Though that being said, I can imagine a situation wherein, for instance, uh, an Adolf Hitler type would say, well, if the Jews would pay 50% more taxes, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, exterminate them. So, and I think something like that could be used, but it wouldn't necessarily be a social contract. Cool. I just wanted to clear that up because we were still quite close to the force bit and... It seemed like there might be a bit of a grey area, but yeah, that makes sense. Mutual benefit as opposed to something perceived as a benefit, which is actually just an absence of a negative. That makes sense. Yeah, the way I'd put it is something like this. Extortion isn't a social contract. It's more of the crass argument. Yeah, exactly. So are there any more questions about the social contract theory? I think because we've covered that quite well in in the obligations, I think we understand it. So the thing with the social contract, though, is you're still going to have some of the same problems that you've got with it as the obligations. So 
it you're going to come back to the the people that don't necessarily value these things and therefore they don't feel like they should be in a social contract and they don't feel like they are giving consent and it's all the same issues but i think we all agreed that you know it, it is well one of the interesting uh, objections you could still make is sort of related to what i said earlier about using the provisions to try and move out uh is the question is if i am trying to um, get out of the social contract by using the provisions in the social contract am i actually providing the social contract with legitimacy or am i not yeah i suppose to make it kind of unarguable there should be some kind of get out clause in which they will allow you to go somewhere where it doesn't apply without cost and supporting them yeah perhaps but that would still be a hard thing because then you would still be benefiting from the fact that there is such a social contract with the rest of society yeah yeah i'm not sure how that would look but it's the only way i can think of practically answering that particular problem with it yeah no i agree that that would be one of the more realistic ideas but it's it's still a problematic thing yeah i agree okay well so the next is that political legitimacy comes from democracy i think that it's fairly self-explanatory yes we voted for that person and therefore they got in or we're part of a democracy and our candidate lost but we still voted uh therefore under our current system etc etc yeah, exactly. And uh, which means that you do consent to being ruled. The question is, though, if you uh, vote for, for instance, Labour, do you also consent to being ruled by the Tories? If you accept the concept of a democracy, then it's kind of inescapable, is it not? Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, you might not want it, but if... <laughs> <laughs> you can't get out of it really because this is what you're in you're in a, in a particular party system i mean yeah you agree to the terms when you entered the competition yeah but then if i don't vote do i still consent to being ruled you're still living in that society and part of that particular one is the right to not vote which means that i have still consented to being ruled which was my express purpose not to consent to so could we say that the democracy argument in this is actually a subsection of the social contract well yes and no not necessarily um because one of the other problems with democracy is that you basically vote on who gets to hold positions within a certain institution within your country and well, what makes you consent to those institutions in the first place? So if I prefer to have a philosopher king, but I only get to vote about who is in parliament, then is there really any legitimacy to the fact that we don't have a philosopher king here? Well, yes, we just disagree with it. We're still living in that society. And so I, I, I do see a bit of a blur between the democracy and social contract as well 
in the same way that you can see how things like the the fair play argument can be linked to the social contract and also the, the parental one for for your obligations so if we're to say that if you live in a country and you choose to not leave it and you're in that democracy and you choose to not vote then that's still you as consenting to something that you don't want to consent to because well again are we not back to the right to leave and so then actually you are not consenting while you are consenting because you don't want to consent to the thing you're consenting to <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's this thing about uh, the philosophy of consent, and that it, it, it's an all different topic, which we'll probably get into in another at another point. But this really messes up that area of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's different to something like bodily autonomy, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, and it isn't because an authority you elect. It can still do a heck of a lot with your bodily autonomy. For instance, the fact that you are paying taxes, and we're going to go back to Nozick's art arguments here, it is that you are actively working, actively actually sacrificing your own physical comfort in that sense, and you are in return thereof paying taxes and being ruled by someone you don't agree with, which is still pretty bodily autonomy related uh well it can yeah i can understand being unhappy with that but if we're going on that whole bodily autonomy consider you're already in the other body by being in that country so you're sort of in a mutual consent there aren't you anyway um yeah but that doesn't diminish the fact that you still have bodily autonomy and consent implies choice, surely. You still have the choice to leave. Which you don't, at least not in a way that uh, really sustains the amount of welfare that you would otherwise have. So they are basically, this gets down to the discussion of freedom we'll have later in this episode, another chapter. But it comes down to the fact that you are free, but you will have to yeah, live with the consequences. And when you do alter the consequences in such a way that it would be disproportionately grave to accept those consequences, then how free are you actually? Yeah, that's fair. It's uh, yeah. really fucking complicated. Yeah, <laughs> spending too much time thinking about it, really. Which makes this subject absolutely delicious i completely agree yeah i'm with you on that i think i think um i need to think on it more and maybe we can uh do a summary at the end of this and come back to any questions or thoughts that we've had about it by the time we get to the end of all these chapters yeah i i, I would love that anyway then uh unless there's any more questions or things that somebody wants to interject that no, all good um I suppose we move on to your next theory yeah which is related to the social contract um it's a political legitimacy from the constitution uh well uh, i know the uk is a notable exception but basically every other um democratic country has some form of a written constitution 
And uh, it's basically a social contract in which uh, a government outlines its responsibilities, its freedoms, and the obligations of its citizens. I might have to stay quiet on this one. Every time I talk about constitutions, I get shouted at by Americans. Well, there's no Americans here, so go ahead. Yeah, but most of our listeners are. The, the concept of a constitution, I think, is perfectly fine. The concept requires the ability to make amendments, as has happened lots of times with the American constitution. The idea that some amendments can not then be changed at any point is fucking ridiculous. Well, I don't think you'll find any detractors here. But this does get us into one of the most uh, interesting complaints to having a constitution, which is the question, how long is a constitution viable? Uh, It depends on how quickly the uh, society is shifting generally through technology these days. I would say when things change to a great enough degree that life is not exactly as similar as it was before, and I know that's a bit vague, but I hope you're with me, then I think it's time to review something like that and to see if it's still relevant. Or maybe it should just be given a set time where it should all be reviewed regardless of actual change yeah well the funny thing is the thing chris just recommended uh, has actually happened in the netherlands i believe some 70 years after the original constitution was uh, put in place and they spent at least 20 years revising it so perhaps that's not the most practical idea but a practical idea nonetheless I think a combination of the two would be quite sensible. If you put in place, like, if quality, length, definition, even possibly, of life changes, then it has to be re-examined. Otherwise, every 50 years, we will re-examine it and change what should be changed and leave what should be left and go from there. Yeah, I think I I, I can agree with that. There's a few more uh, objections, though. One of the things is, I I like to take America to be uh, an example. So, Chris, I think you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Normally. The point is, though, that whenever you have a constitution, you will need to have a body that upholds the constitution. Now, this presents us with two big problems. The first is uh, interpreting the constitution which in the U.S. you see that uh, you have either revisionists or traditionalists, uh, which one says you need to interpret it according to the times we are living in, and the other says that you have to interpret it according to the time they were living in, which both of them seem problematic already. And the other one is that when you do need a body to interpret it it's going to be partisan whatever you do so the good and obvious example for the revisionist and traditionalist approaches would be the second amendment where one would say well when that was written you only had flintlocks it took 30 seconds to reload it it did not apply to ar-15s whereas the other people would look at it and say well it doesn't specify what type of gun is it's talking about It just says that we're allowed guns, now these guns exist, so we're allowed these ones. Would that be right? Yeah, basically. And the the good example for uh, the latter would be 
the fairly partisan um, appointment of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in the U.S. not too long ago. If we went down the line of re-examining it over a given time, like 50 years, then maybe every part of the Constitution would be reworded because it's close enough in the past that the language wouldn't have changed too much, but it would have changed a little bit. So we would be able to interpret the context to what it's supposed to mean a lot easier than if we left it 300 years. Yeah, but the point in revising it in set intervals uh, is that it does sort of attacks the legitimacy of the document. Uh, So it makes it partisan for the time. If, for instance, the Constitution of the Netherlands would have been changed between 1941 and 1945, I would have spent the first few years of my life in a Nazi dictatorship. So if we think about the... Uh, the revisions of uh, of the constitution any amendments that were to made you know people just having a review of it and looking through all of it perhaps part of the ruling that would make it more legitimate in itself would be a, an ambiguity clause so if anything was ambiguous or became ambiguous it was instantly reviewed then so it could be more specific about certain things so if it said let's just use something completely false but all men have to wear t-shirts on fridays now at that time the only type of t-shirt was a black t-shirt so everybody on fridays did that then all of a sudden there came out an array of different colored t-shirts and to save the argument of one person saying well no they've always been black on friday so they have to be a black t-shirt and and someone else will go well no it says t-shirt it doesn't specify the color because it's now ambiguous that is when a revision should go in to then re-specify and then that would also negate chris's argument it would either go any gun on or before this date or it would then go no we're only talking about single shot rifles no semi-automatic or automatic rifles at all yeah that would be a good solution one i hadn't thought of prior i am struggling to come up with objections right now dave do you have one not particularly but i think with the constitution one way of solving certain problems is to look at the intent of say a constitutional reform or what the original constitution was trying to say like the original intent of something like the second amendment was that they didn't have a standing army so people were allowed guns and the intent was to be able to overthrow a government that was bad as part of it part of the intent was the ability of slave owners to recapture slaves using weapons and having little militias to protect areas with those intents not being valid anymore or not being useful intents there could be an excuse to look at those kind of amendments and installations of rights so to speak so with the t-shirt intent what was the intent of making everybody wear black t-shirts on friday does that intent still hold up If the intent doesn't hold up, then move over to allowing whatever t-shirt kind of thing. 
or not even having to wear a t-shirt at all. So yes, I suppose you you know if there was a it was a religious service and that's why they were actually wearing those they're respecting the the a, a particular uh, faith and everybody just happened to respect it on the Friday. That's why they wore the black t-shirts. That religion no longer exists. So there's no reason to put any requirements on men wearing any sort of t-shirt at all. Also, Americans would be fucked if we did that. I mean, it, it, odds are the whole idea of a militia would still be upheld and they'd all of a sudden be able to buy F5, F-22s or fucking tanks or whatever. In some states, they can. Yeah, most of them are too full of cheeseburgers to be able to sit in a cockpit anyway. <laughs> it, it is, though, uh, internationally forbidden for people to have at least uh, aerial bombers so it, it's also illegal in the united states no matter what state you are in yeah that, that's it i mean there are certain ways to be able to frame looking at a constitution but like you said it's difficult to know when why how where that kind of thing cool no that was really interesting thank you does anyone else have any questions for martin before we move on i'm good me too awesome so uh on to your last theory second I think, to last it? Oh, yes, because we added one in, yes. Yeah, we still have the governmental beneficence or the economy. So why don't you guys go ahead and choose which one we do first? Let's do the economy. Okay, well, basically, um, one of the things that's also very controversial amongst economists, I do have to say, uh, is that the um, government has a uh, substantial influence on how the economy functions. Um, one of the ideas, therefore, is that a good economy promotes well the well-being of its population, which, again, questionable, but still. And the fact that some kind of prosperity comes from an economy is the, the reflection of its, of its legitimacy as a good government. So the way um, a, a government basically handles the economy it's indicative of how good the political system in question is and therefore how much they deserve to uh, have the right rule to control that economy. Yeah, I mean, I was just having to think about it and I think it's, it is an indicator. I would not say that any party would get total legitimacy just from that. I mean, if that was the only thing that they were doing, then... I would not say that that's it gives them full legitimacy, but I understand how it how it can be a good aspect to it. Is there anywhere that is operating purely based on this form of legitimacy as a government, though? Um, not that I know of, but you do see it uh, very prominently featured in, for instance, the United States, where, well, you see in times of a good economy, a lot of people tend to agree with the person they've elected. And when the economy, the economy turns downward, you see their approval ratings go down quite quickly. Yeah, so it, it works yeah. as a factor, but not the whole piece. I was going to say, it's like Trump will often in the past have mentioned how strong the Dow Jones was in comparison to previous times, whilst completely ignoring every other measure of 
social benefit. Yeah, and that's exactly one of the biggest problems we do have with this idea, Chris, is that a good economy doesn't necessarily mean that the people are experiencing prosperity. For instance, in the beginning of the Soviet Union, they really had a surging economy better than the rest of the world, which then eventually stagnated and a lot of people wound up in poverty. But they were still, for a few years, the most successful economy in the world while their people were dying of hunger and thirst. Yeah, it seems absurd that anybody would measure economic benefit as how much money the country technically owns as opposed to how much money is actually in the hands of its citizen and flowing and stimulating. Yeah, which does bring up the question of how do we measure a good economy because mostly when you turn on the news you see um, that the stock markets are either up or down or unemployment is either up and down but for instance they hardly ever mention a, a little thing called underemployment which to summarize it quickly is a brain surgeon sweeping the floor of a high school would that also include things like somebody has a job but technically on the wages that they earn they need two jobs to actually live uh yeah that that could be one of the things sure certainly yeah I think an interesting thing to bring up here as well would be Pinochet's Chile, where the sort of fascist government took over under the guise of keeping inflation under control, and they used that to give themselves legitimacy to torture dissidents, smash unions, torture people at work in earshot of other workers to make sure that they didn't rebel so legitimacy from the economy can go quite badly well the latter part is just good economics i mean you need to keep them hard working <laughs> but yeah i mean chile's pinochet is a, or pinochet's chile is a good example of a government trying to give itself legitimacy from the economy and it didn't go very well i was going to say we've discussed this before but people say torture never works and suppose it depends on what your goal is. If it's to get other people to shut up, it seems quite effective. Oh yeah, torture has utility, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> hmm, yes. Now, I think we're all in agreement that whilst you can consider it a factor, it does have problems with how exactly do you measure it accurately, and it really shouldn't be the main thing that you are uh, basing your political allegiance to well is that economy or torture <laughs> both fair okay well then we um, have government beneficence which is simply the idea that if a government is good to its people it is therefore and in the same degree legitimate can you just explain to me what is the difference between beneficence and benevolence uh, just call it benevolence i probably fucked up the english language at that one Okay. I have heard the word beneficence before, I'm fairly certain. So, this may well be correct, but I don't know what that means. Beneficence is defined as an act of charity, mercy and kindness, with a strong connotation of doing good to others, including moral obligation. Oh, so I did, I did do good. Yeah, they sound largely synonymous. 
Yay, I did a good one. So anyway, um, one of the problems here is what constitutes beneficence in this case, and when can we say that a government is actually uh, legitimate through it? So is our current government uh, legitimate because they are beneficent, or would we rather have so would we say that something is only beneficent when it's completely taken care of us or when we have our basics met or etc 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 what kind of metric do we use yeah i'm not sure there's a lot more ways to measure that than i immediately thought of just by the name yeah i think to some degree the actual moral beneficence of the government should play a big part in whether or not they have legitimacy. So I think that's one aspect of beneficence that sort of is easy to calculate. How so? Well, if the government is torturing people in order to get the economy moving, we wouldn't consider that beneficent. If the government is allowing people to be as free as possible without damaging the social structure, we can say that they're being pretty beneficent. What about if they're doing good to a certain percentage of the population at the expense of the other percentage of the population in order to do good or to do the greater good? That's not really being beneficent to all of the population. But the greater good will benefit the people who it's being detrimental to just in a different way. So it's still having their overall concerns taken in concern. Yeah. Okay. Think of it something like this. Imagine a country like the UK, which is considered kind of a Christian country. I mean, we, you know, it, we have a church, a state church, et cetera, et cetera. If they took away the rights of Muslims to practice freely in order to make Christians feel better, that wouldn't be being beneficent. That would be bigoted, discriminatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not that's not really where I'm going with uh, going to with it though. What I'm thinking more is say an economical thing. Say you increased the taxes on the rich by 5% to benefit the poor. But although they would be getting a detriment, the benefit to the poor would improve society in general, which would then have a knock-on effect to benefit the rich in other ways. So although they get a detriment, they're still getting an overall benefit. So everybody benefits, some people benefit more, and only some people have a cost. So wouldn't that be benevolent or beneficent? I was talking strictly of morality, though. If a government is being moral as much as possible to all the people, that sort of adds a kind of legitimacy to them because they are attempting to fill, fulfill their duty to be good, rather than, say, economical. Okay, but then okay. I do have, a, have another a challenge for you, Dave. Okay. Um. As you may know, the Dutch East India Company was an actual company. So, uh, well, while it did get tax cuts and uh, the government was, I believe, a 40% owner of the whole company, um, they 
still were just a company and everybody in that company was well compensated for what they did. What they did, however, was enslave millions, uh, use the product at, uh, that they got from their slave labor and sold it all over the place. The question is, uh, since the people enslaved by that company weren't the nationals of the government in question, would that government still get legitimacy from beneficence or not? No, because they are behaving immorally to others. When I speak of beneficence in a moral way, I don't simply mean to the people of the country specifically or the citizens of a country specifically. I'm speaking in a more general term. So even if they treated all of the people all of the citizens of a country well, but they allowed those people to own other people. They wouldn't be being beneficent. They wouldn't be fulfilling moral duties. But is that using it in the same context as it applies here? Like myself and Joe were struggling with earlier with the term legitimacy. In the logical context, it means something different to what it means in political morality. So does beneficence on this kind of legitimacy level still hold to that wider moral thing? Or does it just apply to its legitimacy as a government? Well, that's basically the question. Yeah, just in general. I mean, it's, you know, um, like Martin says, that that is the question of what gives it legitimacy. So yeah, because if... I would certainly agree that they're not being benevolent or beneficent as the concept applies to wider morality, but whether that gives them the right to say that they're being beneficent for the legitimacy of governing a particular country, then maybe it kind of does. Not necessarily. I wouldn't say that there is a distinction between political morality and morality in general. Morality is simply morality. So if you are keeping slaves as a government, then you are not behaving morally. Even if it is considered politically moral, it still is not moral. No, but it could be politically legitimate. No, that would... Using force and taking a country by force isn't moral but it still makes them politically legitimate. Yeah, in the sense of being able to have power over rather than in the sense of perceived legitimacy. And what I'm speaking of here is more a sense of perceived legitimacy. Okay, I think I get that. Just to interject, don't you just love this subject? It's just so fucking awesome. I do, which is why I'm loving what I'm studying at the moment. I had no idea about the subject before we started on it for these episodes. And I've got to say, yeah, I really do. It's fascinating. This is why philosophy is awesome. It certainly is. This is actually a question I have been pondering for like nine months before this episode. And I finally gotten some sort of an answer in the article that will be online by the time this podcast posts. So for our listeners, check it out. Yeah, I agree. Read all of Martin's work. It's brilliant.
So um, you would say that the beneficence just applied to absolutely everyone that, well, everyone, rather than it being focused on just the country, because we're speaking of a larger scale morality there. It's not just about being moral to your constituents or, or your, you know, your, the people of your country. It's about being moral to everyone to be truly beneficent. Is, is that where you were saying yeah pretty much i don't think it grants legitimacy in and of itself like i say i i kind of go with hannah arendt's argument that power over and power to comes from power with and the fact that we create the institution and give it the power over but if we give it the power over us and it suddenly becomes fascist rather than the beneficent institution that we had hoped it loses its legitimacy which means we need to overthrow it and replace it by a very more very much more communist structure (laughs) (laughs) so in your opinion then dave you would say that perceived legitimacy is ultimately more important than practical legitimacy i would yeah Cool, I'm on board with that. Um, Would you agree with that as well, Martin? Um, Well, yes and no. I think from from the premise that there is something of a legitimate government, you do need uh, something of a more perceived uh, legitimate government. But the fact that um, a government exists precedes that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's the perceived legitimacy that gives it the moral obligation or, you know, it, it gives you the obligation to the government. But their right to rule, if enforced by force, still gives them a right to rule you until you can overthrow them. I mean, there is the argument that once you have to use force, you don't actually have power. You just have the ability to threaten and force people to do things. But that's an argument for another time. Yeah, I think I agree there. The point is basically that you have these two kinds of uh, legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy and the factual legitimacy. And while you can factually uphold your legitimacy, that doesn't mean that it's well perceived as being legitimate. So what you basically need in the first place is that there is a government that is factually legitimate and you should demand them to also be, well, to be perceived as legitimate. And when the perception of legitimacy goes, that's when people are more likely to rise up and overthrow or vote out or whatever, even if they do have the factual, practical legitimacy. That's when aristocrats get the guillotine. Exactly, that's when the terror comes in. I love that part. So basically cool. chop so, off yeah, their heads. I, I absolutely did not understand this topic at all before we started recording today, and I think I've mostly got it now. Nice one. That's what me and Martin try. Exactly. And it's very fucking awesome, and I encourage you to ponder this for the coming at least nine months. So I think we've covered off uh, these um, legitimacy theories quite well. Is there anything else you think we need to add to them, Martin? Um, no, not necessarily. It's, uh, I think, I think we're fairly complete. So do you think there's anything else that can 
give legitimacy to a party a candidate or a government that we haven't necessarily mentioned within this, that those legitimacy theories um well uh i think that uh perceived legitimacy does uh, is also affected by the perception people have of the politicians in question but i believe that 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 wasn't uh, a point that you wanted to raise joe uh, well, it, it was just uh, if you thought things like the representation that you had as part of the particular party had, uh, how much relevance to the perceived legitimacy? Well, that goes back to the whole democracy point, doesn't it? I mean, when you vote for someone, you vote for someone with a certain platform. And as long as that politician keeps to his platform, he's adequately representing you and earning his legitimacy. So do you not think there's any benefit to having people in the government that not only claim to represent your interests, but actually represent you as a person, maybe born in the same area, grew up in the same area, that was the same sex or gender as you, same sexuality as you, same ethnic origin? Do you think that there's any real importance to that side of it, or is it just the values that they represent well i i think that those things are very valuable and identity politics shouldn't be overlooked um i just think that that's a thing to take into account when voting so um if you're voting for a certain party like i do and you see someone who more closely resembles the kind of person uh, which you think should be more represented in politics, then you should vote for them. That's basically why I, within the party that I vote for, every time find a Muslim-sounding name that is also a woman, simply because I think that those people need to be more represented in Dutch politics. But on the flip side of that, just because I'm queer as fuck doesn't mean if I see somebody else who's lgbtq running uh, i shouldn't also stringently examine what their policies are yeah exactly i think that identity politics should take a back seat to uh, good policy because um as one of my favorite youtubers also always says politics is policy and i do think that a lot of things like uh, the gender pay gap and uh, poverty and those kinds of things can easily be resolved by uh, non-identity legislation. Uh, so, for instance, there are certain uh, laws that uh, make it harder for certain people to acquire as much wealth as well other people do. And I think that by making legislation that benefits the, the whole impoverished line in society, you can elevate that group collectively, um, irrespective of w whether they're black, white, yellow. I don't, I don't care what color people are or what gender they are, right? male, female, transgender. Basically, all those people can be raised by just quality legislation. So while I think that it's important to listen to people who have certain experiences, etc., etc., I think that's ultimately secondary to good policy. Yeah, and policies which do benefit those minority groups could 
be put in place by people in the larger majority groups actually just paying some fucking attention and listening when they speak up. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody in that group has to be in power. Yeah, exactly. That's that basically as long as people are willing to listen and willing to see what the actual problems are, I think equality legislation will make sure that everybody has at least their minimums met. What sort of qualifications though do you think someone should necessarily have to fully represent someone? So it, you could have any sort of policy that sounds great, but if you don't have the adequate knowledge and experience to effectively put some of these policies in place, then how um, are you going to be effective in yourself? So, for example, if I had done a degree in politics and art history and I became politician and blah, 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 and I become head of agriculture and I'm supposed to be making decisions about farmland. You know, does that make any real sense from a representation point of view to have someone that really isn't doesn't have the sort of experience or the understanding enough to be able to effectively carry out the role. Well, let's start with the first part of that question, which is um, fully representing is simply not going to happen. I mean, the people that I still vote for are people from the Dutch version of the Labour Party, which are still considerably richer than I am. Um, so they will never be able to 100% represent me. But what is important is that people are looking out for your interests. And when somebody is elected to a certain office, um, you should take into account that they don't do that by themselves. They have an entire governmental body that um, advises them, that does some truth-seeking, and um, that basically just measures the way things are in a certain area of the country or in a certain sector in the economic part of the country. What's also an important thing, and this is a big scare word amongst a lot of people, is lobbying. A lot of sectors will actively lobby a person in government. The only problem these days is that there's a considerable gap in financial resources between big companies and foreign governments and the actual people doing the actual work or living in the actual neighborhood to lobby a politician. And that is something I do think we should in some way remedy. So would you say that lobbying should be banned entirely by corporations? Um, not necessarily, because in the economic system we do live in, companies are still important, corporations are still important. But what I do see is a big disparity between uh, the financial resources that those companies do have and the people who actually have to live with the decisions also have, but they they actually don't really have enough of the means to convince the politician. And how would you go about solving that without an outright ban? Um, well, one of the things would be to uh, mandate um, to uh, have all kinds of politicians simply make their schedules 
publicly accessible, and I do mean publicly, because um, in the Netherlands we do have something that resembles that, only uh, they are able to conveniently hide who exactly it is they're meeting and for what exact cause. So what you should have is well, not just the transparency, but also to, to just make public what people are sort of incentivizing you with to keep it nice it's it's actually just a bribe but still uh, and to see what kind of uh, proposition those people make and when you do that there will be some sort of a backlash to some politicians which will likely have some kind of an effect electorally so one possible and rather entertaining solution would be every company who lobbies with a politician the politician ends up looking like a NASCAR driver with a bright coloured jacket on with all their sponsors' logos emblazoned across it. I, I have always liked that idea, to be honest. <laughs> but um, I do think, I, I think that would be distracting because that if, if the politician would be giving a press conference, everybody would be counting and looking at who exactly influenced what, so, uh, it, rather than listening to what the politician has to say, which is also problematic. What I do think uh, should happen is that some kind of a list would be make, made public and preferably just circulated every week amongst uh, the news media, but it, it is a hard question that you don't just simply have an answer for, to be honest. Cool. Yeah, I think I pretty much agree with you on that. Thank you very much for that, Martin. I've got a lot to digest, and uh, I look forward to us going back through uh, some of this stuff in brief at the end with anything else that we've, um, we've thought about along the way. I also look forward to being able to play this one back because i think i've had a bit of an information overload tonight and uh i need to go back and look up some of this stuff in more detail thank you very much for um answering all of those questions you are very welcome yeah i really enjoyed that martin thank you you two are very welcome i enjoyed it as well yeah as did i and yeah thanks for answering the questions i had a lot more than i thought i would probably because i was a lot more interested than i thought i'd be yeah, these kinds of subjects tend to do that to people. I mean, politics, even when people say they don't care about it, it's actually very near and dear to everybody because it controls like so much of our lives. It's insane. Well, there you have it, folks. Tonight we carried on our journey through political ethics and we had a look at legitimacy. You've been listening to Fresh Air and I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And I'm Martin. I'm Chris. And I imagine. Good night. Good night, all. Good night. Ta-ta.